The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. And the rest of us, you can open up if you have a Bible. Or if you have one of those electronic Bibles, you can not open up, do whatever you do, to Luke 19. If you are visiting today, and I know we have visitors because I've met several this morning, or maybe you've been out a, a few weeks, just to bring you up to speed, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We will be entering into chapter 7 in Corinthians, but we're going to pick that up after Easter. Here it is, April. We've entered the Easter season. Uh, just a wonderful time, a highlight of the church calendar, the culmination of all things, really, the resurrection of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, and His ascension. And today He reigns and rules on high as our blessed, precious Savior. And Easter's kind of a unique opportunity to look at gospel stories in a seasonal kind of way that we don't get opportunity to. So next week's Palm Sunday, so I want to Next, we bring the word in uh, some stories or events that happened in the life of Christ at that time. And then the following Sunday after that is Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. And, and if I would encourage you to, if you can, pass out those cards to your neighbors. Uh, invite them to come to Easter. Uh, Easter and Christmas is a time where church people who don't go to church will agree to go to church at times. I'll get my one or two Sundays in. So good opportunity, whether it's uh, your mailman or a neighbor or somebody you know or a family member, invite them to come uh, 11 o'clock on Easter Sunday. We won't have Sunday school. Um, but we will have our corporate worship celebration at 11 o'clock and a fellowship meal, so we would encourage, it would be great just to have the church packed out as we are reminded of the Easter story. And so I wanted to prepare for Easter, so today's sermon is called I Just Preparing for Easter. And how I came about that was going through the Gospels, I tried to find a story or a message or an event in the life of Christ that happened just prior to uh, Palm Sunday. And so here in Luke 19, the events uh, here where Jesus told this parable, Luke 19, 11 through 27, this is one of the last things that Jesus said or taught just prior to entering Jerusalem and the week of Passion and on Palm Sunday. So chronologically, we're about where Jesus was 2,000 years ago at this time. Uh, so I want to look at Luke 19, 11 through 27. It's a parable he told. As we read it, the, regarding the content of it, you'll note that it's very similar. It sounds very familiar probably to many of you because you'll probably be thinking of Matthew 25 where Jesus told a similar parable. But this parable is different. It's not the same parable. Uh, it, it actually happened on a different day. The one in Luke 19 happened maybe three to five weeks before Christ's death. And the similar parable in Matthew 25 happened the actual week of Christ's death. And Luke 19 actually took place at a different location. Uh, in Luke 19, the parable we're looking at today uh, took place just as Jesus was passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And in Matthew 25, that similar parable, that actually took place in Jerusalem itself. So uh, this is a great way to prepare our hearts for Easter is looking at this parable. One of the things that I was blessed by this week in studying this parable I was reminded that this parable is not very familiar to a lot of folks and even a lot of Christians. Um, it's not one of the popular ones that's often taught on, at least that I'm aware of. So to some of you, maybe you're hearing this parable for the first time, or maybe for some of you, you haven't heard it in quite some time, or you forgot some of the details. But the lessons in it are incredibly practical and a great way to indeed prepare our hearts 
for Easter. So follow along with me as I read this parable. And at the context, Jesus just entered into Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Since Luke chapter 9, he told his disciples, it is now time to go to Jerusalem. And it says that Jesus had his face towards Jerusalem. So all of from Luke chapter 9 all the way to the end of the book, Jesus is on this journey to Jerusalem uh, for his Passion Week where he's going to die and give his life for sin. And so now it's culminating as he's getting very close to Jerusalem now with uh, at least his disciples or apostles following him. And everywhere he goes, he has a throng of uh, interested uh, crowd and people following him as well. And so he enters into Jericho, which is about 17 miles from Jerusalem. So he's close to his destination, about a six-hour walk if you didn't stop walking is about how far it is to Jerusalem from Jericho. Enters into Jericho and he meets the tax collector Zacchaeus who is not saved, and then Jesus calls him down, goes to his house, gives the gospel, and Zacchaeus believes in Christ, and Zacchaeus becomes a believer. He is born again, and that's how uh, chapter 19, verse 10 ends, where Jesus declares there's salvation in this house, and in the life of Zacchaeus, this formerly horrible uh, tax collector who was a thief and cheated people, his life has been changed and transformed. Salvation has come to this house, verse 9 of Luke 19. And then in verse 10, Jesus declares this thesis statement of the event that just happened, but also of Jesus' life and mission of why he came the first time, Luke 19.10. I'll begin reading there and go all the way down to verse 27. So at Zacchaeus' house, or shortly thereafter, Jesus said, For the Son of Man, or I, Jesus, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And the nobleman called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas or money and said to them, do business with this money until I come back. But the nobleman's citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When the nobleman returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first slave appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And the nobleman said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you are, to be, uh, you are to be in authority over ten cities. And then the second slave came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And the nobleman said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief or a napkin or a worthless cloth. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting or harsh man. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. So he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless or wicked slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? 
And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. Well, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who do not want to, me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Wow, what an ending. So this is the parable that I wanted to look at to help prepare our hearts for Easter. Uh, this parable is very similar to the one in Matthew 25. This parable in Luke 19, this is the only place in the Bible where this parable occurs. So it's interesting that Jesus tells two very similar parables, Matthew 25 and Luke 19, at a strategic time at the end of his life, just before his death. So I believe he told these two parables, Matthew 25 and Luke 19, to prepare his people for Easter, to prepare them with the right frame of mind for his immediate death. They needed a course correction in their thinking. They were not thinking properly about what the mission of Jesus was as they were heading into Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that. He knows his own disciples. They are thinking wrong. They are short-sighted. They are misled. They are deceived. They don't understand the whole truth. I need to correct their thinking. That's his own apostles that he has to correct their thinking, let alone everybody else and the masses of people who want to usher Jesus in and install him as king so that he might overthrow the Romans immediately and conquer as a reigning king on the earth right now in Jerusalem as its headquarters. That's what they're thinking. That's the world, what the world is thinking in Jesus' day. That's what his own apostles are thinking. That is wrong thinking. As a matter of fact, go back to Luke 18. In Luke 18, um, as Jesus is reminding uh, his apostles more and more that he is going to be entering Jerusalem, and they just don't get it. Um, as Jesus, well, we'll look at that later in just a second. But anyway, go back to Luke 19. Uh, and I want to just, I take this parable uh, and I just give you three main points that I want to go through. And the heart of this parable that Jesus wants to teach is about faithfulness. And, he's, and primarily he's talking to those around him, his apostles, his disciples. And the thing about a parable, there are a few things we need to remember when we're dealing with a parable. Uh the word parable itself is a compound word. Para, parable. Para, lambano, to throw down. Para means kind of side by side, like parallel lines. That's what that word means. And then lambano is to throw down or to cast down onto the ground. So it's to cast two things side by side and to compare them because they're analogous. And so that's what a parable is. And so Jesus told parables or simple stories, life stories, that he thought everybody, for the most part, would understand uh, the main components of it. And he would teach an earthly truth, and then we were supposed to compare that and elevate it to a higher spiritual truth. So it's a, a simple truth or a simple story that Jesus would lay down for the people so that they could compare those practical earth life truths with a higher spiritual meaning. That's what a parable does. Lays things down side by side by way of comparison and contrast. And so many times Jesus used, he just made up a story, but they were on true uh, life events. Uh, another distinctive about parables is they were universally understood or at least universally applicable. 
they would apply to men and women alike or to rich and poor alike or to different societies alike or even in terms of time they transcend time there are things in parables as we read them today apply to us even though they were told in a culture 2000 years ago and that's why parables were so effective and the parables that Jesus told were inspired because he is the God man and so his intention here is to tell this parable to teach a lesson to focus in really on one main truth and that is to remind his disciples or professing believers to be faithful your priority is to be faithful be faithful in ministry be faithful as a steward of mine and be faithful till I come back again someday so let's go ahead and we'll uh, break it up into three parts and let's look at first verses 11 through 15 and point number one that I want to make there in the first five verses there is the request or the requirement for faithfulness 11 through 15 there's so much here it is so rich but I just kind of narrowed it down to that Jesus is going to make a request for faithfulness regarding his people before I actually delve into the details let me highlight some of the characters here because what is common the worst thing you can do is go into a parable and then assign all the figures of speech and the characters to the wrong people or the wrong events and then you get a jumbled mess as a matter of fact one of the most dangerous things you can do with a parable like this is immediately go read 10 commentaries on luke because if you did that by the time you were done you'd have a confused jumbled mess of a bunch of commentators who don't even agree on who all these people are supposed to be representing in the story or what the conclusion or point of the story is and that happened to me this week like on sunday night monday in my stack of 15 Luke commentaries, I think by the time I got to the third one, I was like, uh, these people are confused and they don't even agree. This is getting ugly. And I put my commentaries away and just began to read it at face value and, and study my Greek text and look at other passages in Luke. And, and I did go back and look at other reliable commentators that I believe were reliable. And there are some reliable ones and a reliable truth and understanding of this that's actually been carried through the church for 2,000 years. It's only recently where... Uh, it's become jumbled. So let's just highlight so we are clear up front who is who in this story. Jesus begins to tell the parable in verse 12. Jesus said, and he begins with the main character, a nobleman, a man of high and noble birth by virtue really of his DNA and his blood, a regal man in the kingly line, the royal line, someone distinguished. And this is indeed a king. Make no mistake about it. The nobleman in the story is Jesus. You think, well, that's a no-brainer. No, not according to the scholars and the commentaries. But no, the nobleman is Jesus. Jesus is talking about himself. He's the main character. Uh, he went to a distant country. The distant country is heaven. So when Jesus says a nobleman went, the verb went refers to Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, where he left earth. Okay, so a nobleman went to a distant country. The distant country is heaven. In heaven, that is where the Father lives. Jesus is going to go back to the Father. And the Father is the ultimate reigning king. Jesus, in this parable, is a subordinate or subsidiary king who will reign on behalf of his Father who is in heaven. So a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom, literally, really, to get authority, to get the authority from a legitimate source, from a higher authority 
that would give him right to reign over his kingdom. So Jesus is going to go to heaven to go to the Father at the ascension to get the blessing from the Father so that the Father might give Jesus all authority to reign over all of heaven, all of earth, all of history, all people for all time so that he might rule over his country and the country in which Jesus would rule over is planet earth and the entire universe. That's what this is talking about. Goes to a distant country in heaven to receive a kingdom for himself. It is his kingdom. Jesus owns everything and then return. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus would come back again someday to be with his people and to reign as king on the earth. And verse 13, and he called ten of his slaves. Very important here. Ten of his slaves. Do loss. Uh, these ten slaves represent professing believers. I'm not going to say professing Christians because the word Christian came with the establishment of the church. That hasn't happened yet. Jesus is speaking to believing Jews, actually an unbelieving Jews. So as he's telling this parable, the ten servants represent professing followers of Jesus Christ. These are people who have aligned themselves to Jesus Christ at this time when Jesus was talking, but also after Jesus did his work in the last 2,000 years, so it extends to anybody at any time in history who would say, I believe in Jesus, I follow Jesus from Judas to Peter. And anybody since that time who says, I believe in Jesus, I am a follower of Christ. That's who these slaves are. And it's a mixed bag. These are professing believers. That doesn't mean they're necessarily true believers. Some of them are deceived and they're not true believers at all. Like I said, Judas was not a believer, but he was a professed follower of Christ for a while. That would include Judas as well. So it's a big group. And they gave, uh, and he gave them ten minas and said to them, uh, do business with this until I come back, the second coming. Verse 14 says, but his citizens hated him. The citizens of the nobleman hated him with a passion. Those citizens immediately are the Jews in Jesus' day who despised him, who had him falsely accused, falsely arrested, beat him up, and had him crucified. That's primarily who it has to reference to in historical reference, but really it extends beyond that. It's anybody who deliberately, knowingly, willfully hates Jesus Christ. And that is true of people today. People who don't know and love him are people who despise him. But his citizens hated him. First, unbelieving Jews as he came to his home country. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. This man, they hated him so much they couldn't even call him by his name. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees did when they accused Jesus before Pilate and before Herod. And they said, we wanted nothing to do with this man. Crucify him. And they called down the wrath of God upon him and made our children's blood be on our head as they cried out. So, that's who the citizens are. These are people who don't love Christ. Uh, verse 15 talks about the second coming of Christ. And so those are the main characters involved. So keep that in mind as we go through the details of this. So let's first look at that first section is the requirement for faithfulness, 11 through 15. Requirement. In other words, uh, Jesus as the nobleman gives a command. It is an imperative. And that's kind of the heart of this whole passage especially 11 through 15. So look at the middle of verse 13. Look for the requirement. Look for the imperative or the request that Jesus, the nobleman, makes. He calls his slaves, his professing believers, into his presence before he leaves and goes back to heaven. And he says, do business. That's the command, do business. That's the imperative. That is the request. That is the requirement. They're going to be held accountable 
for that. So with that, let's go back to verse 11. We'll just highlight things as we run through this narrative story. While they were listening, so that's everybody that was there and present when they saw or witnessed the miracle of Zacchaeus becoming a believer as Jesus had dinner in his house. We don't know how many people were there. Could have been a lot of people and probably a lot of people outside uh, waiting on Jesus to follow him into Jerusalem because everywhere he went, crowds were just flocking around and we know this by now. His name was public. He was the miracle worker. So there were probably a lot of people following him and so uh, that's who's listening. It's primarily his apostles first and then those surrounded at Zacchaeus' house and then probably just a mass of people as well. And so he uses this as an opportunity to preach a sermon reminding of the, them of the priority of his mission and why he came to earth. And so while they were listening to these things, these things refers back to verses 9 and 10 where he just said and reminded them why he came into the world. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. So Jesus reminded them why he came into the earth. So while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because, okay, and so he's, this parable is an, of a necessity. It wasn't just spontaneously, oh, okay, we got time, uh, we got a six-hour walk, and I could probably do nine, so let's take some time and read this parable. No, this was very purposeful, this was intentional, and it was to correct their thinking. He told this parable because he was near Jerusalem, because he was going to die, because he was going to suffer. He just told his apostles that, okay, guys, we are going to Jerusalem. And when we get there, the high priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leadership, the masters of the Old Testament who run and control all things in Jerusalem, including the temple, when we get to Jerusalem, they are going to falsely accuse me. They are going to arrest me. I am going to be crucified. I'm going to be rejected. I am going to die. Now, when Peter heard that, Peter the Apostle became incensed. And Matthew says that Peter literally grabbed Jesus by the arm, pulled him aside away from the crowd, and Peter rebuked Jesus. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not going to die. You're not going to get crucified. You are the king. We're going to go sit on Zion and you're going to reign and overthrow the Rome. And that's probably what Peter was thinking. But he rebuked Jesus when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. So he had to correct that thinking. But when Jesus was talking and said, I'm going to die, he didn't just leave it there. He said, I'm going to rise again. That's kind of important. Hello, I'm going to die in fulfillment of the scripture. I'm going to rise again. They should have known this. They were Jews. They were trained in the Old Testament. The death of Christ was predicted in numerous prophecies from Genesis to the end of the minor prophets, starting in Genesis 3.15, that Satan would bruise the heel of the Messiah. So for 4,000 years, God was saying the Messiah will come and He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. And then it was explicit in Psalm 22. A thousand years under the reign of David in Psalm 22 where it said He would be pierced in His hands and His feet. The Jews should have known this. And then a couple hundred years later, Isaiah 53 spelled it out that he would, the Messiah would be crushed. He would be killed. He would be hung on a cross. So the Jews, they had the Old Testament. They knew this. But as he's telling them, 
they don't want to hear it. They totally dismissed it. They didn't understand. They didn't understand that the primary reason Jesus came the first time was to be Savior, to die for the sins of people on an individual and spiritual level. That message was in the Old Testament. But the other message in the Old Testament was that the Messiah would come as reigning king and literally rule physically on the earth. They only remembered those prophecies in the Old Testament because that's the good news. That's the good stuff. We get to reign with Him. I don't want to do the hard thing and see my Messiah die and where I have to follow Him and have to suffer. So they just didn't get that. And so this is what Jesus has to correct. He has to correct their thinking of why Jesus came. We need that corrective today. We need this parable. Because even as Christians, a lot of times we are misguided in just the most simple thing of why did Jesus come the first time 2,000 years ago into the world? Why did He come? Well, according to Jesus' own words, it was the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, to die as a Savior for the sin of the world. But over the course of history and even today, we have churches and Christians saying other things of why Jesus came. Jesus came, uh, many tell us wrongly, that Jesus came to bring about social justice in the world. He came 2,000 years ago to remove the curse. Jesus did not come to remove the curse the first time. Jesus did not come 2,000 years ago to eradicate poverty. He didn't. If that's why He came, He failed. Jesus did not come to bring about economic justice or equality. Jesus not He didn't come to preach the social gospel. He didn't come to restructure... Uh, all the institutions of earth right now, like our political system or educational system or our healthcare system. Jesus didn't come to fix the environment and heal Mother Earth 2,000 years ago. So on and on, <clears throat> these wrong thoughts we have about why Jesus came. Jesus did not come the first time to make the world moral. Jesus did not come the first time to make our nation moral. That's not why He came the first time. As a matter of fact, one of the problems that the Jews had, or actually one of the advantages that we have in hindsight because of the full revelation of Scripture, we understand and know that the Messiah was to come at least two times, a first coming and a second coming. And you know what? The Jews in Jesus' day, they knew the Messiah was coming, but they never thought about, well, there's a first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. They didn't think that way because that's not what they saw in the Old Testament. It's hidden in the Old Testament. That is a mystery. They only knew of one coming. That He would be the Savior, the King. He would rule physically and politically on earth just like all the prophets say. They didn't understand the difference between the first coming and the second coming was this huge gap called 2,000 years of time at least that will transpire between the two. And if you believe in the rapture that is in 1 Thessalonians 4, that's the third coming of the Messiah. So the first, second, and third comings, this is a mystery the Old Testament Jews had no idea. It just wasn't in their worldview or frame of mind so we have that privilege looking back so this is the thinking that he had to correct and so that's why he told this parable uh, because he was near jerusalem and they supposed his own apostles maybe zacchaeus and all of his friends and family and anybody else that aligned themselves following jesus and even unbelieving jews of that day the religious leaders they all supposed that the kingdom of god was going to appear on earth physically here's the key word immediately right now immediately that is the main thing that jesus wants to correct no when we go to jerusalem i'm not going to be reigning on a throne as king of kings and lord of lords yet 
That is not the next thing on God's agenda. My death and resurrection is the next thing on the agenda, not reigning as king literally on the earth. So they thought that was going to be immediate. And so now he's going to tell them, no, that's not the next thing to happen. My coming again isn't going to be immediately. As a matter of fact, he says in this uh, parable that I'm going away and I'm going to a distant country, which implies a long period of time. And in the parable in Matthew 25, Jesus specifically says that after he left, he was gone a very long time. 2,000 years is a very long time, isn't it? Jesus told him that up front. It's not going to be immediate. It'll be a very long time. So that's why we need this corrective. This is We need to be sobered by this in our thinking about the coming of Jesus Christ. Are you excited about the prospects of the coming of Jesus Christ? Man, I am. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Tomorrow's Monday. I don't want to go to work, you know. That's what that's the heart of the Christian, right? And that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing to live in light of his coming. The imminence of his coming at any time, at any moment. He promised that he would come. As a matter of fact, what he said at the end of verse 13, he didn't say I will come again. He said <clears throat> literally in the Greek, I am coming. Think about that. You know what that means? I am on the way. I am in transit. I am in route. That's the imagery. And that speaks of imminence. I'm on the way. But our desire for Christ's coming needs to be balanced and tempered with the reality that, you know what, it could be a very long time before I actually return. It's already been 2,000 years. His apostles thought it was going to happen in their day, the same week that he died and rose again. They said in Acts chapter 1, is it this time, Lord, that you're going to restore the kingdom? And they're thinking, on earth? No, 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 it's not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has appointed. No. Change your thinking. And so the church needs to hear that. Because all throughout 2,000 years of history in the church, uh, time and time again, Christians, many times well-intentioned, talk about the imminent end of the world or the imminent uh, rapture or the imminent uh, coming of the Antichrist or the imminent end of the tribulation, the beginning of the tribulation or Christ coming. And right now it's the four blood red moons that have been identified by NASA, which fulfills Revelation 6. And the world is about to end. I am not kidding. I am getting emails every week about that. Is your church prepared? The world's about to end. We're about to enter in the tribulation. On and on it goes. And people get nervous and hyped up and they're not sure and panic. No, be at ease. Jesus says, you know what? You think about one thing while I am away before I return. And by the way, when I return, it's a very long time. Think about one thing. That is be faithful. That is do business for the king until he returns. That's the point of this whole parable. And so uh, they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so verse 12, he said, and so let's begin the uh, parable proper. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And as I said earlier, nobleman just refers to somebody of noble birth. This is Jesus. He was the one of no, most, the most noble birth of all. And it's not necessarily the surrounding conditions it's speaking of. It's the very person who was born. He was most noble of all. He was God in a body. Yes, Jesus is God. He is Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is almighty God. That's the most noble birth of all. And so he represents himself in this story as the nobleman. So a nobleman went to a distant country. And so Jesus is referring to the fact of I am about to leave earth and go back to heaven, really where I came from, to be with the Father, 
to a distant country, it's even in a different uh, atmosphere, stratosphere, or reality. It's in the spiritual realm. That's the most distant place of all. To receive a kingdom. So he was going to go back to the Father after dying in obedience to the Father's plan, being buried, rising again the third day in fulfillment of the Scriptures, then spending time with the disciples, ascending on high, going back into heaven to be with the Father, to be reunited with the Father and the Holy Spirit, to be glorified once again with the glory He had before the foundation of the world. That's what He's talking about. Going back to where He came from, for where the Father sent Him. And when Jesus rose again from the dead and ascended on high, according to Philippians 2, it was then that God the Father bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And now that He's in heaven, He is receiving authority from the Father to rightfully reign over all of creation, over all of earth, and over, over every man and woman. Not just believers, not just Christians. Jesus has been given the authority by the Father to rule over every human being. That is significant. Because that means at the end of the age, when every human being breathes their last, last breath, they are immediately catapulted into heaven and actually into the very presence of Jesus as judge. He owns every soul by virtue of creation. He owns every soul by virtue of His resurrection and the authority that the Father gave Him. John 5 says that clearly, that the Son of Man judges every soul. Jesus owns every person. Jesus owns unbelievers. That's one of the key things that unbelievers don't realize. Well, I don't believe in that Jesus stuff. Or Jesus was a nice guy or He was an okay teacher, but they ignore Him, they dismiss Him, or maybe they mock Him or they don't want anything to do with Him, or they think Jesus isn't relevant to their life. And what this is saying is that Jesus owns them. And they don't get that. He is the Lord. He is their judge. He is their creator. They must give account to Him. So whether you are a Christian or not, Jesus owns you. And that's what He's referring to. He's going to get this authority to reign over the kingdom from the Father for Himself. It is his right to reign. It is His country. It is His world. It is His domain. And then He's going to return. And that's the second coming where He will literally land on earth physically and then begin His kingly, physical, political reign in fulfillment of so many Old Testament passages. So before He leaves, here's what He did. Verse 13, He called ten of His slaves and gave them Ten minus and said to them, do business. This is really uh, the Great Commission. Before Jesus left, he gave a commission. He gave a commission to all of his believers. Do business. Do business. Get busy. Uh, the ESV says, be engaged in business. The NIV says, put this money to work. Be a proactive steward of the blessings priorities, opportunities, responsibilities, gifts that the Lord Jesus has given you as a professed follower of Christ and be faithful in doing it and continually active in it until I return. That's the command. That's what we need to do. And that's applicable to every single one of us who professes to know Jesus today. Get busy. Are you busy for Jesus? Am I busy for Jesus? This is a good reminder for me and a good rebuke. Where am I investing my time? How am I spending my energy my thought life, my leisure time, 
If I am a Christian and a follower of Christ, priority number one is to be busy for Jesus. Get busy. Invest in Him. Invest in His kingdom. Maximize the giftedness that He's given you in a spiritual way. This is a command regarding how we do ministry. Ministry in the church. Ministry in the world. Ministry to unbelievers. Get busy. Matthew says, occupy until I come. Occupy with the right priorities and business of being active as a follower of Jesus Christ. And whatever the business is, it's how God has equipped you and gifted you. It's whatever the stewardship responsibility He's entrusted to you. And it's different for everybody. And it's all significant and it is all important. Whether you set up chairs in the morning here at church, whether you tear down things at the end of church, whether you do music or do sound, uh, put the bulletins together, clean up the sanctuary, serve throughout the week, provide meals for other people, uh, pick up trash in whatever, it, and it doesn't matter your age, it is all important, and this is a requirement and command for you if you profess faith in Jesus Christ. Give yourself over to ministry and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need that reminder today, don't we? I know I do. This is the priority. He called his professing slaves. These were, by the way, the, the word for slave there is doulos. This is absolutely key and critical to the story. All these professing believers were slaves. This word reminds, uh, the word doulos uh, means slave. It can also mean servant. And the emphasis there is you serve somebody else. There's a higher authority than you. You have no authority in and of yourself. You don't own anything in and of yourself. You don't deserve anything. You can't really earn anything. You are in submission to someone else, a higher authority over you, who basically rules your life. And if you have any authority, it's delegated authority they entrusted to you. No, Really no rights and privileges unless somebody grants it to you. You are the lowliest of the low. You deserve nothing. You have nothing in and of yourself. And that's how Jesus describes professing believers. That's how Jesus describes true believers. If you're a true believer today, that's your identity. That's my identity. That's my biography. What am I? I'm just a doulos. I am a, a servant. I'm a slave of the king. I own nothing. Every good thing I have in my life, I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. It was given to me as a free gift from the gracious hand of Almighty God. And someday I have to give an account for it and give it back to Him. I am the lowliest of the low. That's really the emphasis on the word slave. And that's who these are. These are professing followers of Christ. And so he actually entrusts uh, goods to them, the Lord Jesus does, before he goes back to heaven. So he calls all the professing believers together. He entrusts them with goods. And it's really uh, the treasure of the Word of God, the treasure of the Gospel, uh, supernatural spiritual gifts he's given to them so that they might do service. It's amazing, unique opportunities for service in life. It's unique abilities that he's given all of us. These are the minas. This is the money. Mina just refers to uh, a day's wage. And so the amount here is about, uh, or it's more than that. It's actually three months worth of wages. So whatever that is here in the Silicon Valley, from 5000 to 500000 I guess, three months. Um, so it's not an extravagant amount, but it, it is valuable, and they are entrusted with this. And they are supposed to be stewards of it, and they are expected to invest it and be active and do ministry and service on behalf of Christ while they are here until at the end of verse 13. Here's the key. Until I come back. Until I return. Be faithful. Priority number one is being faithful. Priority number one is not being successful. It's not making a name for yourself or myself. It is being faithful. Faithfulness to the Lord. 
And then this comment, verse 14, but his citizens hated him. Like I said, these were the Jews of Jesus' day who should have embraced him as king, and they're the ones that had him crucified. That's harsh language. The citizens hated him. Well, that's kind of a strong word. We're not allowed to say hate in our house, you may say. Well, it's in the Bible. And these people hated Jesus. They hated him so much they falsely accused him and had him killed. They had him murdered. Jesus knew this. John 7, verse 7, Jesus told his disciples, the world hates me. Do you know that's still true today? The unbelieving world hates Jesus. I don't care what the veneer is that they put up where they say, oh yeah, we can tolerate Jesus, or he was a good man, he was a good role model, he was a good teacher. If they're not a follower of Christ, they hate Jesus to the core in their heart. God knows that, that's what he has declared. Jesus made it clear, you're either for me or against me. There's no neutral ground. There's no in-between. You can't claim ignorance. You're either for Christ or you are against Christ. And Jesus said, the world, that's anybody who doesn't believe in him, they hate me. And then Jesus gave this promise to his disciples in John 15, 19. The world will hate you. What do you think of that promise? Wow. But that's the cost of following Christ, isn't it? Being like him. The world, and then he, he literally says in John 15, 19, the world hates you, present tense. The world hates you. And then he goes on in John 15, 25. The world hates you. The world hates me without cause for no legitimate reason. So if you're a person that's just bent on everybody having to like you, you're being disobedient to the call of being a Christian. You're, you're driven by the fear of man. You're driven by pleasing people. You can't be an effective, fully obedient Christian with that mindset. The world is going to hate you and by the way, we read that and think, okay, I'm going to be killed by the world or whatever. I'm not really being hated for Christ. No, actually you are. If you're a Christian, you are being hated by the world. It just You've got to be careful and diagnose how it's being manifest in your life right now. It's anybody that's not a believer in your life who hates your morality, who thinks you're narrow-minded. Oh, that family member, the Christian. Oh, they're coming over for Easter or Christmas or Thanksgiving. They think there's only one way to heaven through Jesus you know, they are that they're despised by that. They hate that. Or you have this legalistic moral code. You actually believe in right and wrong. And egads, you use the word sin. They can't stand that. They hate that. They hate you. That's really a manifestation of it. And Jesus said, if people treat you with hatred and mockery like that and despise you because of your morality that came from knowing Jesus and your beliefs from the Bible, you are to rejoice when you are insulted and mocked by men it's the call of a christian but this uh, verse 14 his citizens hate them and they sent a delegation after him saying we do not want this man to reign over us and as a result the jewish leadership had him killed killed verse 15 when he returned jesus is coming again he will return that is a fact and christians are supposed to live in light of that reality and that's where we find our hope right christ is coming again it's a historical reality that will happen Yet future, when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he's, he, he already has that authority to reign as king. And he's going to implement it when he sets foot on Jerusalem and when he reigns over planet Earth, get this, for a literal 1,000 years. King Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. So when that happens, so verse 15 is talking about what's going to happen in the future. He will, and then he ordered the slaves, all these professing believers will come to him. They will stand before his throne and he will begin judgment. Um, and he calls them to him, to whom he had given the money or the responsibilities, the stewardship responsibilities of ministry of the word of God. 
that they be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. How did they invest these spiritual opportunities? And so that brings us to the point number two after the request for faithfulness is the reward for faithfulness. And so there are ten servants representative here. The first two are examples of faithful service, faithful believers who occupied themselves and did spiritual ministry, spiritual business. They had the right priorities. They knew that Jesus was their master. They are a slave. And it is him who I obey and serve in this life. So that's 16 to 19. Verse 16, the first appeared. So this is the first of the slaves appeared before Jesus. And notice how he addresses Jesus, master or his Lord. Lord, your mina has made ten minas. And what he was saying is there, I took your... By the way, what you gave me belonged to you. I didn't own it. I was merely a steward of it. I didn't earn it. You gave it to me as a gracious gift. Everything belongs to you, Lord. That, that's the mind of a faithful Christian or a faithful believer. They understand their place. They understand the place of the Lord. Your mina has made ten minas more. In other words, they invested it wisely. They applied themselves. They followed uh, the command of the Lord and they were obedient. They did business. They engaged. They were faithful in biblical and Christian ministry. They were not perfect, but they were faithful. And we can do the same. We can be faithful. And as a result, this servant is rewarded by the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age. Verse 17, and the nobleman, or really Jesus, says to that faithful servant, well done. Well done. Jesus is pleased. Uh, in the Greek text, it's EU, which it means good. Oh, this is pleasing. This is pleasing. Isn't that amazing how we as sinners can please the almighty, creator, sinless uh, God of the universe? We, we can actually please him. And faithful service on his behalf pleases God. He is pleased by this. Life of living worship. He says, well done, good slave. I love that word for good, agathos. Agatha, if your name is Agatha, you've got a great name. Agathos, Agatha, good slave. Just, and that speaks of the very nature. Your status before Almighty God, even though you are a sinner, you are saved, and before God, you are good. If you are a Christian, God looks down on you and He sees you are good. If you're a believer, God, Jesus looks at you and He sees you are good in terms of your nature because Jesus, God, made you good by virtue of salvation. You are not good, I am not good in and of myself. I was not born good, I was born evil. But because I believed in the gospel and Jesus saved me and transformed me and put the Spirit in me, He made me good. And in terms of service and our relationship with Christ, we can be like this servant, a faithful obedience. We are good. And that's what he says, good servant. Good job. I am pleased with you because you have been faithful in a very little thing. Just that three months worth of wages. You were faithful in that little manageable thing. You were serious. You loved me. You took it seriously. You invested it. You protected it. You were engaged and proactive. You knew your mission in life. You knew your status before me as a slave. You knew my identity as the master and the king whom you would have to give an account. And you were faithful through it all as you waited patiently for me to return someday. That's really what he's saying here. Faithful in a very little thing. And here's the gracious reward. You are to be in authority over ten cities. That is absolutely mind-boggling and amazing. The contrast is here, verse 13. You are a slave. You own nothing, you deserve nothing, you are nothing, and the reward is you not have all authority, the authority of God Himself. We will be co-regents with 
Christ in heaven someday. That's what Revelation says. We will reign with him in glory. And this is the reward. This is an unbelievably gracious reward. And so this is the promise of the reward that a faithful believer will get someday as they are before the throne of Jesus Christ, as they enter into the millennium and even eternal, the eternal state itself, that believers are going to be given some kind of amazing, supernatural, eternal authority by Christ in heaven. And for this one, it was ten cities. Can you imagine the slave who was a slave and owned nothing now has the authority over ten heavenly cities for all eternity? It just, it's unbelievable. That could be you. That could be me. I would just like to live in one of those cities, let alone have the authority over it. Wow. So that's a faithful. This is a true believer. They were a professing believer and they were a true believer. Then verse 18, there's another one, a second one. So a second slave servant comes. And he goes before the master and calls him Lord. And he says, your mina, again, recognizing that it was not his own, has made five minas. So he invested it. He was diligent. Uh, the return is smaller. Maybe he has a smaller capacity of service. We can't all be Martin Luther. We can't all be John MacArthur. We can't all be Augustine. Can't all be a 100-watt light bulb. Maybe I'll be content. I'm a 45-watt light bulb as long as I'm given light for Jesus. And that depends a lot on the giftedness that God entrusts to us, and He wants to be faithful at the level that He's called us and equipped us. And so this servant is also faithful. Jesus is not comparing 10 verses 5. Oh, 5 is bad. Actually, 5 is good. Five times more. That is awesome. You were faithful. You took it seriously. And you will be blessed and rewarded as a result. And your reward in verse 19, your gracious reward. You are a slave. You deserve nothing. You own nothing. But now you also are going to have authority over five heavenly eternal cities. That is great cause to rejoice. So those are the rewards for the faithful and this amazing authority of whatever it's going to be and be like in heaven. That's what we have to look forward to is Faithful believers. So let's go on to the last point there in the conclusion to this parable 20 to 27. Uh, rebellion of unfaithfulness. Uh, you could also put uh, the retribution for unfaithfulness because they're going to be punished. Those who are not faithful are going to be punished. Uh, look at verse 20. Another came. So another one of these ten slaves, one of these ten professing believers stands before the throne of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. Uh, the word there, another, is absolutely significant because in the Greek text, it's heteros. There are two words for another or other. One is alas, another of the same kind, and heteros, another of a different kind. He is different. So man number three is different than the first two. He is hetero heterodoxy, a uh, different doctrine, heterogeneous, different in nature, and this is not good. So a different kind of professing believer and follower came before Christ. That's an ominous picture. Oh, this, this doesn't smell good. And it's not. Another came saying, Master, gives him lip service. Here's your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. So he didn't invest it. He didn't occupy. As a matter of fact, he could really, can you imagine getting this amazingly precious gift from a higher authority of noble character from a king and just taking it 
and just kind of wrapping it up in some cloth maybe you found on the ground and just throwing it aside and totally neglecting it, not, a, not even bothering to think about it again until the day of accounting. That's the picture and imagery here. This was absolute neglect. This was total disinterest. This is kind of a ho-hum approach. They think it's totally insignificant. It's not a part of their agenda. It's not what they are about. It's not their priority. Oh, I got to give it back to you. Oh, okay, you've called us here before your court. Okay, I guess I got to go. You're the boss. You're the master. Oh, yeah, you want the thing back? Okay, here it is. I wrapped it up in this absolutely worthless cloth or handkerchief. That's what's going on here. And then he keeps talking, this another slave. He didn't invest it and he got zero return because, verse 21, he says, for I was afraid of you. I was afraid of you. There is a healthy fear that believers should have before Almighty God, says the book of Peter. A holy fear in light of our sinfulness. Oh man, oh God, oh Christ, depart from me for I'm a wicked man, said Peter in the face of a holy Jesus. We should do the same. So there's a healthy fear. And then there's a sinful fear. And that's what this is. This is not a healthy fear. He doesn't fear Jesus because he's Jesus, King of Kings. He doesn't fear Jesus because he is the sinless Son of God. He doesn't fear Jesus because he's the judge of every soul. He doesn't fear Jesus as an act of worship. He fears Jesus because of his twisted, distorted view of who Christ and God is. And he goes on to tell the details of his perverted view of Christ. I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. The Greek word is austere man. That's the Greek word, austere. You know what that means? That means harsh, cutthroat. One English translation legitimately says hard, cold, merciless. You are without grace. You don't cut anybody any slack. This is a very wrong view of Christ. This is the polar opposite of who Jesus is, right? The compassionate Savior, the loving Savior, the, the gracious, merciful, patient Savior of the world who desires none that would perish, but that all would come to Him for repentance and be saved. That is Jesus. This is the polar opposite. This person doesn't know Christ at all. You're a, you're a harsh king. Then he goes on to insult it. That's kind of a... By the way, that's kind of a, a, a victim's identity they're taking on. They're being passive here and they're playing the victim. Oh, and you're harsh. And wants people to feel sorry for him. That's being passive. Now he goes on the direct act of attack of Christ's character. And that's the next part of the verse in verse 21. You start pointing the finger at Christ, the judge. You take up what you did not lay down. You come around and collect money and proceeds and capital and interest on things you didn't spend your time taking care of and managing over. You're taking it from other people who do your dirty work. You are a thief. That's what this man is calling Christ. Believers don't do that. They don't accuse their precious Savior of being an illegitimate thief. Of exploitation. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. Wow. The gall. I can't even imagine that. And standing before the Almighty Judge of the universe at the end of the age, before his throne, and laying into the judge of the world with such audacity. Verse 22. So Jesus, the nobleman, says to this other servant, By your own words, I will judge you. 
This is right out of Matthew 7. By the standard, the standard by which you judge, you shall be judged. You call me a severe and harsh man, I will be severe and harsh. Because you have rejected me for who I truly am. You have rejected the gospel and you are now culpable. And yes, you won't get the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God. You are going to get the full fury of God's wrath. That's the irony of this and that's what he meant by your own words. I'm going to have to judge you then. You have rejected me, the Christ. Then he says this, you worthless slave. Okay, the NASB says worthless slave. The literal, the literal Greek word paneros is actually evil or wicked, which all the other English translations say accurately. I think even the NIV might get it right here. You wicked, not worthless, you wicked, evil slave. Note the contrast between the earlier slave who was a good slave. Good slave, saved, forgiven, knowing Christ. This one, wicked, evil, deserving wrath. A false professor. This is Judas incarnate right here. This is uh, somebody sitting in the church or the church universal who professes faith in Christ and they don't know Christ. They are deceived. They're living a lie. And they will be exposed at the end of the age before Christ and his throne. Did you not know? Jesus goes on to say that I am an exacting man. I am indeed austere when I have to be and when it's legitimate against my enemies, when they reject the gospel and they reject my gift, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow. Verse 23, then why did you not put the money in the bank? If you really feared me, at least you would have invested it somewhere in the bank at, to the money lenders so they could protect it for you and at least get a little bit of interest and then come back and get it if you truly feared me. But you don't. You're lying. Everything about him is being exposed. Why didn't you take it to the bank? And then when I came back, I would have collected it with interest. But you didn't do that. Verse 24, then he said to the bystanders, then Jesus, the nobleman, said to the bystanders, the bystanders are either the seven other faithful servants or it could be angels, we don't know. But it's whoever is going to execute Christ's judgment at the end of the age. That's definitely holy ones, believers or angels. So he says to the bystanders who follow him and obey him, take the mina away from him that's been entrusted to him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. Can you imagine that? Jesus sounds like a capitalist here. Taking the ten, that's not fair. You're you're giving to the haves. You're supposed to take from the haves and give it to the have-nots. Jesus is turning about how we think about rewards and money and grace on its ear in terms of how we think. But what this represents is God's grace, God's amazing grace. His ceaseless grace, His ongoing grace, His extravagant, unexplainable, inhuman grace that keeps pouring and pouring and pouring. And that's true in our lives if we're saved, isn't it? No matter, you, no matter how much we sin, if we know Christ, we are forgiven of that sin, isn't it? And the longer you live your life, the more sins you sin, the more grace is poured and showered on you. And the grace of God just continues to grow throughout your life as a Christian. It is amazing. You can't out-sin the grace of God. If you know him, and that's the beautiful picture here. Just pour pour on that grace. Pour it on. Those who are faithful, pour it on. Let them be blessed. Then you can hear people in the background, that's not fair. Jesus doesn't care. He knows what's right. He knows what's just. He's the boss. Verse 25, and then he said to them, uh, oh, they said to him, Master, he, he has ten minas already. That's not fair. And then verse 26, Jesus says, I tell you, I know what I'm doing. I am the king. 
I tell you that to everyone who has, everyone who is faithful, everyone who is a true believer, at the end of the age is going to be rewarded with abounding grace by Jesus as judge. Amen? That's what he said. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, does not have what? Does not have faith in Christ and in His Gospel. They have rejected Christ deliberately, knowingly, willingly. But the one who does not have, even what he does have, all those opportunities, privileges, gifts and abilities, will be stripped away. These are the ones in Matthew 7 who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? And in the end, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. You lawless ones. Synonymous with you wicked, evil, unbelieving ones. With a damnable future from Almighty God as judge. And then verse 27. But these enemies of mine, these ones that... uh, Hated me? The citizens of the king that hated me? This is anybody who doesn't believe in Christ. Anybody who opposes Christ and rejects Christ for who He is. But these enemies of mine, at the end of the age, anybody who does not put their faith in Jesus Christ is going to have an accounting before Almighty God and Jesus Christ and His full fury. Anybody, bring all of my enemies who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, in my presence and slay them. Can you imagine? This does not. People will protest. This can't be Jesus talking. This can't represent Jesus. Saw that in a couple of commentaries. Jesus doesn't talk like that. Jesus is all love, love, love. Jesus doesn't hate anybody. Jesus would never punish anybody. Jesus would never eternally slaughter somebody in his presence. Well, those kind of people don't truly know the Jesus of the Bible. He's a gracious Savior, and a holy judge. And I want to close now with Revelation 19 as we go off for our day and our week. An important picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. We need to live in light of this future. There's an accounting someday. We need to be be engaged. We need to be doing business for the King. We need to try to be faithful. And that needs to be our, our priority and purpose in life. And someday there's going to be an accounting of reward for those who are faithful and retribution for those who reject Christ. And when he comes, this is how he will come. Revelation 19, verse 11, And I saw, John the Apostle said, Heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He makes war against his enemies. That's Jesus it's talking about. This is yet future. This is a real event. It will happen. His eyes are a flame of fire. His head, that means he's coming with judgment, and he's omniscient. And on his head are many diadems. He is the king. He has all authority. He has the right to do this. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is almighty, infinite, eternal God in his very person. He is clothed with a white robe. He is sinless. It's dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. That blood is from his enemies that splattered when he brought judgment to them. That is not the blood of his hands or his head on the cross. That's the blood of his enemies. Verse 14, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Jesus on their white thrones. And from Christ's mouth, the nobleman comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is our precious Lord Jesus, that during this time 
before He comes back, He's being a gracious, merciful, patient Savior who came into the world to save all who were lost. He has no desire that any would perish, but all would come to Him. And He's commissioned all of us who are believers to do the very same and plead with unbelievers to come to Christ, to believe the Gospel, to repent of their sin and be saved and rescued before it is too late. Because Jesus knew people do need the Lord. With that, let's go ahead and pray and commit our time to the Father. Father, we do thank You for our time together. Thank You for the fellowship of the saints. I thank You for Your church, the household of God. Thank You for every person that You brought on our campus today. God, use the truth of Your living Word to impact our thinking, to resonate in our mind. Help us with Your Holy Spirit. How best to apply it to our own personal life. God, give us a renewed sense of urgency in light of this parable. That We need to be busy about your business. We need to be faithful in ministry and we need to have a broken heart over those who are lost and don't know you. Remind us to pray for their salvation. Remind us to be faithful stewards, to give them the word and the gospel every opportunity we have. And we thank you and we love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.